Good morning. We continue our uh, treatment, our study of Ruth, uh, and you turn to page 223, and we'll come to the third chapter of this fantastic little story. It's amazing how this story is such an incredible piece of literature, as most anybody acknowledges, and at the same time manifests God's character in the lives of these people toward each other and prefigures or foreshadows the very act of God giving his son in Jesus Christ. There is really nothing so complex and beautiful in ancient literature as these glorious stories in scripture. So we'll begin with uh, chapter 3 verse 1 and read this chapter together. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, speaking to Ruth, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with those young women, uh, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, 
Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, give us grace to see the beauty and uh, complexion of this story and how you reveal yourself in it and how it points us, Lord, to your amazing care in Christ Jesus and points us, Lord, to the love that we can live out in our lives, even as Ruth and Boaz did in theirs. Bless us, Lord, to your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. So, these two uh, titles that I have here, Give Yourself Up to God's Sheltering Care, and then Give Yourself Up to God's Steadfast Love, uh, these are uh, more or less the applications we're going to draw, but I don't want to just pull out principles without us getting into the rich story, uh, entering into the feel of what is going on here. So we'll, we'll jump in and uh, begin to treat just the amazing story that we have here. So first of all, though, give yourself up to God's sheltering care. Let's see how Ruth acted in this way and Naomi. Naomi is so concerned about Ruth's well-being. She's really not in the first place concerned about uh, an heir for her husband or son. And then in return, we find out Ruth is concerned for Naomi's care and well-being, not an heir for herself. So there's this act of self-sacrifice and care that Naomi and Ruth are, are giving to each other. Now, the time of harvest was a great time of festivity and joy. Uh, it's compared... The joy is compared to this. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, uh, Isaiah 9. And this joy encompassed the threshing and the winnowing, uh, the threshing floor, an open, uh, raised place uh, where first the threshing took place. They beat the grain, separated the uh, grain and the uh, chaff, and then they would throw it up in the air and the evening breeze would blow away the chaff. And so the heavier grain can fall. But it also was a place, generally, of sexual immorality. The men staying behind to guard the grain at night, however the women may have been involved, they're gone. The men are there. That's when prostitutes would show up. In fact, God is saying in Hosea, chapter 9... You've, uh, speaking of Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, he says, you've loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Speaking of their wide engagement with idolatry, but compared to what everyone knew happened on a threshing floor. And so a person hearing this and hearing uh, Bo, uh, Naomi say, and go down to the threshing floor, would be said, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no, you don't want to do this. That's, that doesn't look good. That's not a good situation. I mean, that would just be a reaction. But Naomi knew Boaz's character. She knew that Ruth's, Ruth's own reputation would protect her. Still, 
This was a risky move, a bold move. It was certainly out of the ordinary, out of the blue, and could have been misinterpreted. This was not in the manual, okay? (laughs) Nevertheless, the narrator is telling us that Naomi rightly seized the opportunity that she saw and that God worked through her plan. In fact, the narrator is saying Naomi's plan executed God's plan. So she picks this time when Boaz will be feeling content and happy, full of food, full of drink, uh, a smart move. Storytellers saying, hey, God uses this kind of human ingenuity to accomplish his purposes. Always be thinking, always be using your wisdom and creativity when you face situations. But as you hear verse 4 When she says, uh, go and lie and uncover his feet, go lie down, uh, uncover his feet and lie down. Again, there would be kind of a gasp. Because you're wondering at that point, if you're hearing this, what is going to happen when he sees her? What's, how is he going to react to this? We don't know. That's a, that's the huge risk being taken here. It is a, a gamble, but it is, they're both seeking in every way to see God bless Naomi, Ruth, Ruth, Naomi. And the question is, are Boaz and Ruth going to follow covenant love or not? The word chesed, which means steadfast love, translated so often of God as steadfast love, is used in this narrative. And so the question is, will they follow that covenant love or not? So the situation is definitely sexually charged. It's purposely put forth that way. And it brings us kind of to the edge of our seat. And the fact that in verse 8, it says man and woman. Both gives the picture of kind of the darkness, you know, figures moving in the darkness and uh, the... Uh, fact that it obscures their identity and it emphasizes it's a man and a woman, okay? These are purposeful things for us to be on the edge of our seat wondering what's going to happen. And we might ask at this point, why hadn't Boaz done something already? Why hadn't he acted? Maybe he didn't think that marriage would be acceptable to Ruth because he's older. He could have been as old as Naomi, And he's like, you know, I would, but who would want this? You know, (laughs) who'd want this old man? Or maybe because he wasn't first in the line uh, of the redeemers. And why any of the others? Probably maybe one's waiting for the other one to move. Or maybe they're all holding back because this is a Moabite woman. Not so sure I want to go there. All right. So you see, Naomi is breaking the deadlock. Nothing's happened in these weeks of her uh, being involved in the harvest. And so together, Naomi and Ruth are making this bold, dramatic, and we could say attractive offer of marriage. She assumed, Naomi, that Ruth's presence there would be obvious. It's a request of marriage, but she didn't know what who was first of kin. She didn't know if he was the true redeemer. And that's why she said, let's just wait and see what he says. Okay. So they're there. She's lying at his feet. 
This symbolizes a proposal for marriage. It symbolizes her sexual readiness for marriage. It does not signify a readiness for immorality. It was a pretty nifty way to have Boaz wake up, notice her, and have a conversation alone in the quiet. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Hitch and that dramatic scene in the boardroom uh, where he stands up and defies the boss and walks out and a little bit later she comes to his office door. And at the end of the movie, uh, Will Smith is saying, do you think you would have noticed her? Yeah, I mean, noticed him. Yeah, I probably would have. No, probably wouldn't have. And that's kind of like this, this bold thing of, having him sit up and notice this young woman and that she would marry him. So there's no doubt that they did not have sexual relations. Uh, But there is this tension. Even one would say there's some temptation. It's difficult and awkward. They're sleeping together, isolated on a threshing floor. And probably the audience is squirming at this point. This is not comfortable How is he going to react? Is he going to be mad? Is he going to be delighted? Is he going to be embarrassed? And what's interesting is that Naomi says, he will tell you what to do, but it's Ruth that tells him what to do. I mean, it is a request, but she is calling for Boaz to act. Unheard of. your, Your hand would be to your face at this point. The younger person speaking to the older person, a field worker speaking to a field owner, a Moabite speaking to an Israelite, a woman to a man, a poor woman to a rich man. And she calls him and says, spread your wings over me. Spread your garment over me. This symbolic act of his Extending his garment over her that she asks of him is a promise to care and protect. And you can see the meaning behind adulterous acts where it talks about uncovering the nakedness of a woman. Exposing her, her being exposed to danger and abuse and neglect. This is the opposite of covering her, protecting her, and committing yourself to care for her. She's saying, as one scholar put it, your Redeemer responsibility calls for you to marry me. That's how strong her language is. And it's interesting, Boaz never questions it, does he? Never questions it. He assumes it in his answer to her. And we need to pause here and just speak a little bit about what this covering implies in terms of our relationship to God. Because this is a reflection of God's covering us with his uh, garment. His marriage to his people is set forth in some pretty PG-13 terms in Ezekiel 16. And then in verse 8... God says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. 
I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. A graphic picture of Israel in her helplessness being taken in by God. But that's the image of the garment covering her. And so we, we come to him, we come to God, we come to him not so noble, really, as Ruth. We're foreigners, all right, but of a worse kind in that we've alienated ourselves against God. We've been lying with the enemy of God. We had allegiance to self and not to God. We all stand under God's judgment That's our condition. And yet Christ, as the true kinsman redeemer, the one who is really pictured and foreshadowed here, he took on our situation. He became responsible for our well-being, for our salvation, for our everlasting happiness. As Paul says in Philippians 2, that he counted us more important than himself in his sacrifice. He took our place. He took responsibility for our sin, just like a kinsman redeemer would take responsibility for the losses and the destruction and the situation in which a relative would find himself or herself. He lost everything that we might gain everything. He threw the corner of his cloak over us. He took us for himself and devoted himself for our good forever. And so I would say to you, if you've not come under the cloak of God, look at the face of God in the person of Christ. That is the revelation of who God is. That is the willingness of God to throw his cloak over you because God has come in the flesh to take the place of sinners to bear their punishment so that you might know forgiveness, so that you might enter into the favor of God through Christ and stand in that favor all of your life and for it to affect every part of your life, every relationship, all your responsibilities, to take you in to, to be your, his workmanship, creating you in the image of his love and his joy even to the final day when you will inherit the earth with all of God's people. Hard to say what that cloak means as it's offered to you in Christ Jesus. So we need to be like Ruth, and we need to say, spread your cloak over me, spread your wings over me, for you, Lord Jesus, are my Redeemer. So give yourself up to God's sheltering care in Christ Jesus. But then as well, give yourself up to God's steadfast love. And here I'm not just saying give yourself up to enjoy and receive God's steadfast love, which I am saying, but give yourself up to not only taste and know that love, but to live out that love in your life. Give yourself up to God's steadfast love. Well, as we return to our drama, the tension is relieved. We wonder what his reaction is going to be when she says these bold, audacious things for a woman in her position to say, but he calls her my daughter, my daughter. 
all will be well. He takes the Redeemer, uh, the kinsman Redeemer would take up the cause of the afflicted or destitute relative. Boaz knows this, of course, and he embraces it immediately. And he speaks of her kindness in verse 10. And that word is the same word that's translated so many times in Scripture of the steadfast love of God. Chesed. You have to cough almost to say the word, right? Chesed. And this word uh, is it embodies, that, that shows that Ruth has embodied that chesed love in the way she's, she's cared for Naomi. She's not concerned for her own offspring and her status of having children. Otherwise, she would have gone for the younger men. She, her one concern is this man whom she knows can truly care for her mother-in-law. And so here it's self-effacing. She's spinning herself. She doesn't care about herself. She doesn't care about her own status. She cares about Naomi and what Naomi might receive through Ruth becoming Boaz's wife. And, of course, she went for character and kindness. She went for this man who himself had demonstrated such chesed, such godlike love. And here, Boaz sees her as a woman who is equal in status and character to himself, as he acknowledges that she is manifesting the love of the God of Israel. And it's interesting when he says, I will do all for you that you ask, because he echoes Ruth's word to Naomi, I'll do everything you tell me. And now here is Boaz saying, I'll do everything you tell me. So in that way, he's following through with Naomi's plan. He's, 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 he's saying, I will serve you and I will uh, give you the things that you need. I will become a servant. This, this rich man becomes a servant of this young Moabitess woman. And interestingly, in 311... Uh, she's described as a woman, a worthy woman. And it's the same basic phrase of chapter 2, verse 1, when Boaz is called a worthy man. So they're being compared in this way. She is Boaz's peer. She's fully qualified to marry him. Indeed, the two are going to make a good match. The worthy man and the worthy woman. And this same word is used in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife who can find. And in that chapter, it speaks of being acknowledged and praised in the gates. And you can't see it in the translation, but uh, when he speaks of her character and that the people of the town uh, have seen that she's a worthy moment, woman, it actually has the word the town of the gate, so that the people of the gate have seen this. So she's demonstrating that she is an excellent woman in Israel, and he treats her in that regard. 
And of course, in verse 13, when he says stay for the night, he uses this word lodge, which removes any sexual connotations, no doubt of his intentions. The couple chooses integrity over passion. He protects her from anyone that might harm her. That's why he asks her to stay. Um, and, and then, of course, protects her reputation against accusations of sexual impurity. <clears throat> so in this story, the narrator is telling of how human beings act as God to one another. Human beings show the very love of God to one another. This is what brings Naomi the salvation after chapter 1 when she's lost everything. And she becomes the grandmother of a son who will be the great-great-grandfather of King David himself. And it's fascinating. You have the story like the parting of the Red Sea, and it's very obvious God intervenes, parts the sea. Here, God is just as involved, and he's working through everyday human events. Through the creativity and thoughtfulness and ingenuity and compassion of Naomi and through the boldness, the riskiness, because Ruth could have lost everything, but she had in mind the good of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she risked all for that. This is, this is a demonstration of God's love in action, everyday, faithful, chesed, steadfast love. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible translates chesed as never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And marriage is supposed to be that, of course. Chesed love, it's, uh, it's covenantal love. It's the commitment of one to another. Sexual intimacy itself is a declaration, should be in its very essence, a declaration of that kind of love to another person. It's the way you express that kind of love to another person, that you express, I'm yours forever could say a lot about that. But I want to ask this question of us. Are we, and several commentators point us in this direction, are we risking ourselves to love others? Like Ruth risks herself to love Naomi. And we can ask serious questions of ourselves. Am I risking a loss of time Am I risking my carefully propped up self-protection? Even in our homes, are we men risking ourselves to love our wives? How many of us men will not face looming problems in our marriage that have crippled real intimacy and openness and honesty and trust? Problems that have gone on for years. We don't want to admit it. We cover our inability to love our wives with pride and anger and shortness and silence and distance and more work and more home projects and more personal exercise or recreation or entertainment or whatever, except more love to our wives. We men can be the biggest chickens in the world. (laughs) Because we won't risk losing ourselves to love our wives. 
Ruth risked everything when she left Moab, and then she risked everything again when she went to the threshing floor. So are we risking ourselves to love our neighbors? Risking ourselves to show hospitality, to meet them, to learn their names, to find out about their families and their problems? Are we risking ourselves to share the gospel, to minister to the poor and the dispossessed, to refugees from other nations that live here in Fort Worth through world relief? Who are the people in the world that haven't had heard the gospel? How are we risking ourselves for them? That's what Hesed is. A committed love to the death. Because we've received God's committed love. And this is what God's love does for us. It's how it transforms us. Who are the people that we can reach for Christ if only we take a personal risk with the gospel? I've got to ask myself, how am I, Darwin, how are you risking yourself for the good of others? The Council of Nicaea in 325 was the first church-wide ecumenical council. But the Christianity had only been the religion of the Roman Empire for a decade or two, okay? Before that, there had been constant persecution. So there were about 1,500 men gathered at Nicaea to meet, and among them were those who were partially blind, those who had limbs missing, those who were crippled, because they had confessed Jesus faithfully. They would not deny him, and they suffered for it. And their suffering literally is the reason you're here. Their suffering is the reason the gospel took hold in Western culture and has spread throughout the world and is continuing to spread throughout the world. As we heard recently from a man who is undercover in one of the Middle East countries that the church is multiplying there more quickly than anywhere in America right now. That's from an independent agency. It was because they were willing to lose their lives and because many did lose their lives that Christianity continues to spread this day, that it has come to us. I love, uh, I love often what happens in the Peanuts comics when the kids are playing baseball. You know, Charlie Brown is the manager. Charlie Brown is pitching, and so he carries the whole weight of winning and the weight of all his players and everything that goes on on his shoulders. It's just another thing that Charlie Brown has to go through. So he's, he's on the mound, and he yells out to Lucy, who's playing outfield always, That's a beautiful new glove, Lucy! And she responds, and she says, Thank you! How long do you think this glove will last? Next frame, she's standing there like she does, and the ball hits behind her, okay? Charlie Brown, probably a hundred (laughs) years at this rate, because you're not going to even catch a ball in that glove. In this way, we have to say, you and I are to be, we're called to be, we get to be gloves that are used up. For Jesus Christ. Absolutely worn to a thread. 
And when I played baseball, I did wear some gloves out where the, 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 the stitches were gone. The glove was falling apart. I had to get another glove. But that glove had been used and used and used and used. That's what you're called to do and be. That's what I'm called to do and be. Go online and look at a, just, just type in ballerina's feet. And you'll see some of the most gruesome feet you've ever seen in your life. And their descriptions of the pain they experience, they'll say things like, they'll say, what's the hardest ballet, Swan Lake? They all say, it's the most painful. They use that, it's the most painful of the dances is Swan Lake because of what we have to do in it. Those are feet that are are used, used to create beauty. We don't even see it, right? We just see the beauty it reminds me, of course, maybe you too, of the Velveteen Rabbit, where uh, talks to the skin horse to find out how you become real. And the skin horse talks about you have to be loved into being something real. And you're worn out. And so the pink of his ears is likely to fade. And uh, his shiny buttons are going to become dull. Maybe one's going to be missing. His fur is going to rub off. He's going to lose his shape. And in that story, it's because he's being loved by a child. But I would translate that a little bit. It's because we are loved by God and therefore we love others. And brothers and sisters, I want this to encourage you and not condemn you. As you embrace and enjoy and rest in the love of God, this is what happens in your life. You, you, you will, you must spend yourself for others and give yourself away to them and be worn out for them. And I close with Paul's great words in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. There is no manifestation of Christ without risk and without loss. That is your joy That is your honor. That is your dignity. And in that sense, we could say, that's the way you become real human beings in this world. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story of the love and the shelter, the protection between Ruth uh, Ruth toward Naomi, Naomi toward Ruth, Boaz toward Ruth, Lord, your love is all over this. Here they are living out Hesed love. Here they are living out covenantal, steadfast love to one another. Oh, Lord, we thank you that if we can see this in their lives, how much more can we expect through Jesus Christ to see this in our lives as a church both within our fellowship and then manifesting itself outside of our fellowship, that, oh, Lord, we would be marked by this steadfast love. We would be marked by a willingness to be spent 
for the glory of Jesus. It would be our joy to bring this glory to you, to manifest the life of Christ, the love of Christ, no matter what might be the cost. Give us that energy. Give us your presence. Oh, Lord, encourage us and build us up. Continue your great salvation, for we are weak. We, by nature, are given to ourselves. We, by nature, protect ourselves. Oh, Lord, make us like our precious Savior who gave himself away so freely. Only you can do it, Lord. Only your spirit changing us. We rest in you. Amen.